It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's the, the famous opening line of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And, you know, that beautiful tension that he, that he introduces us to in that first line uh, really introduces a lot, of, a lot of the themes in the book. It's talking about kind of the juxtaposition between the two cities that he's talking about, London and Paris, this during the time of the French Revolution. He's probably also hinting, if you've read the book, at even some of the, 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 two, the two characters in the book that, that are quite different but actually look quite alike. He may even be hinting at the best and the worst that's going on in the French Revolution where the oppressed become the oppressors eventually. But it's also a pretty good description, I think, of Ruth chapter 1. The best of times and the worst of times all kind of happening right alongside each other together. So what we're going to do this morning, briefly, is just kind of walk through that. What do we see in the worst of times here in Ruth? How do we see, as Ruth calls it, her, I mean, excuse me, as Naomi calls it, her emptiness? And then what do we see going on that really we could call the best of the times? It's going on under the surface where God is filling. So that's how we'll walk through it today. The worst of times first. We'll start with the bad news first. So let's just recap what you just heard. Naomi, a woman of Israel from Bethlehem, is married to a man, they have a couple of sons, but there's famine in the land of Israel, and so they leave Israel and they go to a place called Moab. It's the country next door, not a part of the promised land, but outside of God's promised land. And in the midst of living there, Elimelech, her husband, dies. She's left with two sons who marry two Moabite women, and then over the course of the next few years, both of her sons die as well. Now, just on the surface, for any of us, that is terrible tragedy. Here's a woman who has lost her husband and lost both of her children that we know about. So she is a woman who is rightfully mourning. For any of us, this would be devastating, wouldn't it? To lose your spouse, to lose your children within the span of 10 years or less. But actually, for Ruth, there's even more, for Naomi, excuse me, there's even more going on kind of behind the scenes here. Because for a woman during that time period and in that culture, women would have been almost completely dependent upon men for their provision. So if you lost your husband, you lost really kind of all of the provision and the protection that you had, and really the only thing that you could rely on is if maybe you had some sons that could care for you. But she loses her sons as well. So here's Naomi, not only mourning, not only sad, not only with this deep loss personally and emotionally, but really she's got some serious practical issues to deal with as well. She is alone and she is, remember, in a foreign country. So she doesn't have her family to fall back on. She doesn't have her people to fall back on. She's in a new place all by herself without any provision. She is in a tough, tough spot. Just from the surface, you could look at this and say, this is the worst of times for this woman, Naomi. But actually, there's something going on in the background as well. See, the original readers of, of Ruth would have picked up probably on a couple of things that were happening not just in Naomi's life and in their family, but also in the life of Israel the people of God during this time. And there's a few clues that we give here, the writer gives us, as to what's going on more broadly, more culturally. We, we open up here and we see that these, 
these things, these uh, events take place during the time of the judges, is what we read. Now, Judges is actually the book of the Bible that directly precedes Ruth. So, if you want to go and read about what's going on during this time that Ruth is alive, uh, you'll get to read a lot of really fun stuff. There's some great stories in Judges. That's where we find Gideon and all of the great, you know, uh, conquering that he does. You find Deborah, who's the only female judge. You find Samson, right? These great stories that we learned as a kid. But maybe what you didn't learn as much as a kid is that Judges is a really, really tragic book. In fact, kind of there's a repeated refrain. The story kind of goes around in circles, and it sounds about like this. God saved his people, brought them into this land, gave them everything that they needed, and told them to be faithful to him. But the people eventually, particularly in the fruitful times, turned away from him and started uh, a trail of unfaithfulness and turning to the gods of the people around. And because of that, God actually began to give them over to their enemies, and their enemies would attack them. And then God, in His mercy, would give them another chance. He would raise up a judge, probably better understood as a rescuer, a rescuer to rescue His people from the mess that they had gotten themselves in, brings them back to Himself, and then guess what happens? The same thing over and over and over. And it's like wash, rinse, repeat in the book of Judges. It is a spiraling downward such that at the end of the book of Judges, we get this really ominous last verse that says, during this time, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It's anarchy in Israel. It's a time of deep unfaithfulness. It's a time where God's people are going their own way. There should be a king in Israel, it should be the Lord, but nobody is following him. But there's other clues that we get of the worst of times going on here as well. One is just even in this word Moab, the place where they are. So Moab, you could just read it as a neighboring country, it's close by, it might be a place where you would go if you were a sojourning kind of people and there was no food or water in the place where you were, you'd travel to the nearest place, it's the next door country. But Moab's a little different. We get some clues actually throughout the Bible beforehand that Moab's not the greatest place. It's actually Moabite women that lead God's people astray in the wilderness when they're on their way toward the promised land. Uh, if you read through Judges, you'll find that there's a king of Moab who, who, um, who comes and oppresses God's people for 18 years. The king of Moab is ruling God's people in Israel. So if you are original reader of this story, when you see the word Moab, alarm bells should be going off. This is not good. Bad stuff is happening. This is outside of the boundaries of the place that God said he would provide for his people. But there's more too, because we're told that they've left because there's a famine, there's not enough food. Well, why do we see famines? One very easy answer is, you know, weather patterns, right? When, when it doesn't rain as much, you don't get the crops, and you don't have food, and so there's not enough food for everybody, so you have a famine. So that's one very particular answer, is weather. There's a deeper answer as well that the Bible proclaims, is that we live in a broken world. We live in a world broken by sin, and so we are feeling the effects of that brokenness because things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But there's, often, there's also even a particular reason here in this passage. So let me just rewind a little bit, give you a little bit of backstory. Remember, 
God has rescued his people out of Egypt. He had called Abraham to be his vehicle of blessing the world. He said, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and through you all the families of the world will be blessed. Abraham's family grows into a big nation. That nation actually ends up in Egypt. Then they end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God rescues them out of slavery, and he brings them through the wilderness of Sinai, and he gives them this new land, and he tells them some really specific things. This is a land, do you remember this phrase, flowing with milk and honey. It doesn't mean that there are just cows everywhere. It's really kind of a euphemism to talk about the fruitfulness of the land. This is a land that's fruitful. It's going to provide for you. It's going to give you everything that you need. But there was a bit of a caveat for Israel. God said this very clearly, I have brought you here, and I brought you here out of my own accord because I am merciful and kind and gracious, and you didn't do anything to earn it. However, your response then to my grace is to be faithful to me. And if you remain faithful to me, then the, then the land will, will remain faithful to you. It will, it will produce for you. It will give you what you need. But when you start to turn away, the land will actually dry up. You'll no longer have what you need because you have left the faithfulness of God's people. You have left the mission that I've called you to, and you've turned to other gods. And so the blessings and the promises of these covenants, are they're not going to produce for you in the same way. Now, we should pause here to kind of ask this question, because sometimes this can be kind of confusing. Is this still the way that God works? And the answer is yes and no. No, in that no longer are God's people and His promises and His covenant promises tied to a particular land. So God gave Israel this land to be a part of their mission of blessing the world. They were supposed to inhabit this place and be a light for the nations. And the nations were supposed to look on and see, wow, look at what's going on in Israel. That's supposed to draw their attention then to the God of Israel so that they might come and worship Him. So they were meant to bless the world through the use of this land in this place so that others would be drawn in and the Lord would be known by the whole world. But in the new covenant, we no longer have a kingdom that's tied to a geography. We live in a non-geographic kingdom of God. Jesus actually has become the land of rest for us, the man of rest for us. He has fulfilled those promises, and He has called us to the mission of proclaiming His kingdom, but that kingdom is non-geographic. That's why alarm bells should kind of go off in your head when you see things like, uh, you know, quoting the Bible in those places where it says, if my people repent, I'll heal their land. If that's ever tied to a place like the United States, alarm bells should go off. You should say, no, 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 that doesn't sound right. We're in a non-geographic kingdom. Or even the hope for the restoration of the physical land of of Israel, alarm bells should go off, right? Because God's kingdom is not a geographic kingdom anymore. It's not tied to a particular land in a particular place. However, we still have the responsibility of maintaining faithfulness to God's mission. And there's still consequences for unfaithfulness. So when God's people turn away, bad things happen. Let me give you a couple of examples. Over the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, as you know, lots has come out in the Roman Catholic Church of the abuse by the clergy 
of young children in the church. Terrible, horrific crimes perpetrated by not only God's people, but actually those who were supposed to be leading God's people. Well, what's happened actually because of that? Well, if you look at the numbers, uh, people are leaving the Catholic Church by the thousands in droves. So not only is it bringing about a harm upon the name of Jesus, but actually people are leaving their faith, and they are, the churches are emptier because of that. So we have this very clear picture of God's people being unfaithful and that harming their mission. Bad stuff happening because of it. It's not just the Catholics, though. This happens oftentimes in the Protestant church as well. If you look even over the course of the last hundred years, many of the, the, the oldest um, you know, denominations have let go of Orthodox Christianity, true biblical Christianity. So oftentimes, you know, old denominations that used to preach the gospel are actually filled now with preachers who are preaching just kind of feel-good self-help messages. And they have lost even their hold on, on really basic biblical truths, stuff like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. And what's happened, the consequences of that is that actually people are also leaving the church in droves. People are fleeing, and there's emptiness both physically and spiritually in many of these churches. For instance, we have friends that live in a town called Falls Church, Virginia, and uh, there's a church in the middle of town called, you guessed it, the Falls Church. And this church is, it's an old church. If they named the town after the church, it's an old church, okay? So this church used to be a part of what was once a very faithful denomination. And this church in particular was a vibrant, flourishing church, wonderful gospel-centered church with wonderful, vibrant worship and great preaching. But it gotten to the point where what the church believed and what the denomination believed were so far apart that the church decided the most faithful thing to do was to leave the denomination. And so they did. But they couldn't take the building with them. So the church actually had to find a new physical home, and the denomination took over the building. And of course, guess what happened? Wherever the new vibrant church, gospel-proclaiming church moved to, grew, and was wonderful and vibrant and flourishing. And this old, historic, amazing church at the center of the town was was filled with about 20, 25 people listening to a feel-good self-help sermon, empty preaching, empty pews, empty hearts for the most part. That's God's people letting go of their mission, being unfaithful to what God has called them to, and actually seeing the consequences then for that unfaithfulness. So there's kind of the backstory of the bad news, the worst of times. Now let's talk about how we respond to the worst of times. How do we respond when things are bad, both culturally, uh, maybe even in the church broadly, or even particularly in our own lives? How do we respond in times of difficulty? Well, I think it's actually fascinating to see how Naomi responds. Her conclusion is an interesting one. She says, you know, during this time of difficulty and despair, maybe God doesn't really care about me. I mean, listen to how many times she says it. Here's verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, the Lord brought me back empty. Verse 21 again, 
the Lord has testified against me. And then again in verse 21, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Over and over and over, she says, the reason that I'm in this spot is because God has something against me. He's out to get me in some way. Now, I do want to just give this caveat. There is a question. Is what Naomi is doing here, is what she's doing here proper lament? We actually find words like this all throughout the Psalms where God's people are given the freedom to cry out and say, Lord, it feels like you've left. Why have you left? So there is a proper level of lament. This sounds in some ways like the Psalms. Or is Naomi actually turning inappropriately to cynicism? I don't really know the answer, but it's helpful for us to kind of consider these things. Uh, you know, in the, uh, in the movie uh, Forrest Gump, one of the great characters is Lieutenant Dan, who's Forrest, uh, you know, lieutenant in, in, in Vietnam. And, and during the war, you, you see that Lieutenant Dan has this, his one dream. His one dream is to be a war hero, which means either he is going to save somebody's life and get, you know, Purple Heart or whatever it is, the award. He's going to be awarded as a, as a war hero, or he's going to die gloriously in battle. Those are the two options for him. But what happens actually is that Forrest saves his life, and in the midst of it, Dan is injured and loses his legs. And it's so hard for him to deal with this tragedy because everything that he dreamed about has been taken away from him. All the things that he kind of pinned his hopes on have been taken away. And so no longer, no longer is he the, the war hero. Not only is he not the war hero, he's actually had his life saved, and now he doesn't have his legs either. And so he lives out the rest of his life, most of it at least, in this tremendously angry, cynical way. He's mad at the world. He's mad at Forrest Gump for saving his life even, and he's mad at God. There's this great scene where he's up on the mast of this ship in the middle of a hurricane, and he's waving, literally waving his fist at God and challenging him, come on, bring it on. He's angry at God because he didn't get all the things that he wanted out of life. God has it out for me. And I got to tell you, sometimes I can turn to this as well. When things get hard, it's easy sometimes for my heart to go toward things that I don't know or that I know are not true. Maybe, maybe God really doesn't have my good in store. Maybe God really doesn't care for me. Maybe what's happening right now is because God has kind of just forgotten about me. He's kind of checked out. He. he he likes me okay, but he's just not, doesn't like me enough to come and like actually do some good things for me. Oftentimes we can kind of develop this idea that in the midst of difficulty, the reason that things are difficult is that God has turned away from us and left us alone. Friends, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. That is not true. In fact, we get wonderful clues that that is not true through the rest of this passage. So let's turn our attention to the other side of the coin now, the best of times. How do we see God's goodness and faithfulness happening right here? Well, most of it is going on behind the scenes. So we pick up some hints, but we gotta dig a little bit for those hints. Uh, let me tell you about just a few of them. Here's the first is that we get a hint about God's character here. Uh, in verse eight, let me read verse eight for us one more time. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. That word that's translated kindly in English is actually a very important Hebrew word called hesed. 
It's a word that appears, uh, by my count, 244 times in the Old Testament. And hence, it is such an incredibly important and powerful word that in English, we really don't even know kind of how to translate it. We've got like five or six words that we keep throwing at it to try and figure out the meaning of this word. It's oftentimes translated loving kindness or covenant faithfulness or mercy. Here's some information, some background about this word. It is a relational word, often tied to the concept of covenant, specifically God's covenant with his people. It's fundamentally about action more than emotion. It's often used to describe the actions of a fundamentally stronger person toward a fundamentally weaker person. So it describes the love that is shown to someone who's in need by somebody who provides. It's going beyond the call of duty, right? This is an above and beyond kind of word. And though it is used of humans, most of its usage, over two-thirds of its usage, is talking about the love, the hesed that God has toward his people. Of course, his people are supposed to take that and spread that to one another as well. And it is the foundation of God's love and attitude and relationship toward humans. It actually underlies the covenant structure of the Bible. It underlies his action. It is fundamentally about his character. God's character at the end of the day is chesed. That is who God is. And we get introduced to that here in this passage. In Exodus 34, when Moses says, show me who you are, show me your face, show me your glory, God says, the Lord, the Lord, he repeats his name twice, a God merciful and loving, abounding in steadfast love, chesed. We get it uh, 139 times in the Psalms. We already said it actually in worship a couple of times. We cling to God's chesed, his steadfast love. And though it only appears three times in Ruth, it really is the foundational principle one of the, the themes, the thread that weaves its way through the entire book. So that's Hesed. That's the hint that we see about God's character. We also see a hint about God's plans. If you look even in that same verse, I'll read it again. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So Naomi is giving a blessing to her daughter-in-laws. She's sending them out with a blessing, and she says a few things. First of all, may you receive mercy, chesed. Secondly, I want you to receive rest. And then third, may you even receive provision in the form of a husband. Friends, this is actually sounds a lot like the way that God deals with his people, doesn't it? I'm going to give you myself, show you my character, give you my loving kindness, just like he told Moses. I'm going to take you into this land in which you're going to find your rest, and I'm going to provide well for you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. In fact, it sounds a lot like what I say after church every Sunday, doesn't it? May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his face, his countenance toward you and give you his peace. Those are the words that God told Aaron to speak over the people of Israel. It is God's blessing. It is a promise of his plans for them. And then finally this, we also see a hint of God's activity in verse 6. I love this. Look again at verse 6 if you've got your Bible with you. If not, just you can listen and I'll read it. 
Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. This great proclamation that God had not left His people alone to die. He had visited His people and He had given them food. It's a great actually bookend to the very first verse we hear. There was a famine in the land of Israel and God visited His people and gave them food. That beautiful proclamation of God providing where there's need. But actually, in Hebrew, there's even more because this sentence is written with some really cool alliteration and repetition that's supposed to draw our attention to it. The word for food there, or maybe even more specifically, bread in Hebrew is lechem. And it's repeated, not only there's some kind of rhyming, but also the way that it's written, the structure of the sentence, it almost sounds like God visited his people and gave them bread, bread. It's repeated twice there at the end of the phrase. And did you notice where they came from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It means literally house of bread. The name of the place they came from was called the house of bread. And so here's God repeatedly saying, I'm bringing you back to the place of bread because I have brought the bread back into the bread house. You left because it wasn't there, and here's me showing you exactly what I'm going to do. And as Bruce Gibson pointed out to me this week, how cool is it that uh, the bread of life was born in a town called the bread house? God is providing for his people. He is showing us not only his character and his plans, but his action even right now. So what do we do about this? We'll finish with this. Uh, Four just kind of quick takeaways from here. And here's the first one is that Ruth is actually a model for us of what it means to cling to the Lord in faith. She is a model of conversion. Ruth is saying some incredible things when she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Remember, Naomi gives her the opportunity. She says, just go back, find your people, turn again to your old gods, the gods of your culture, and go and just live your life. And Ruth says this, you know what? There's emptiness in the gods of my culture. There's emptiness in that religion, and there's fullness and realness in the Lord. And so I'm actually turning away from the things that I know and turning to the Lord in faith. She's an example for us of what faith is supposed to look like. And by the way, she's a Gentile, remember? She's not a Jew. She's not a part of born into God's people. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, God uses the faithfulness of Gentiles who are acting like God's people are supposed to act to show them exactly how they're supposed to be acting. So we have this, faith, this Gentile who is actually responding in repentance and faith. It's the same thing that God's people are supposed to be doing all the time. So just really briefly, if, if you don't know if you're a Christian, here's a great example of what it means to become a Christian to actually turn from the old things that fulfill you and turn to Jesus for fulfillment, to turn to him and say, your God will be my God. You now get to rule over me because you actually have something that's real and lasting, and I have not been able to find it anywhere else. But of course, it's also the model for Christians too. So if you've been sitting in church pews or church folding chairs for most of your life, this is the model for you as well. Repentance and faith is a daily activity for Christians. 
We cling to Him because we see so clearly that the world does not give us what we need, that there's emptiness around us and there's fullness in Christ. Here's the second thing, is that following Jesus always has costs. This is shown pretty clearly in Ruth. She leaves her home country. She leaves the place that she knows. She leaves the people that she knows. She leaves the culture she knows. And by the way, hitches herself to a woman who really doesn't have any prospects at all. Because what Ruth sees very clearly is that if you have nothing and you have the Lord, you have everything. She has said, to leave actually what I have is going to get me all. But friends, that is hard. (laughs) That is never easy. Jesus encounters uh, a man that we often call the, the rich young ruler in the gospel accounts. And Jesus says something very similar to him. He says, leave. Leave what you have and come and make me your God. Make my people your people. Come and follow me. Come and leave all the things that you're fulfilled by and come and follow me. And we're told that that man goes away sad because he had great wealth. He continues to cling to the things that have been fulfilling him. Because you know what? Discipleship is hard. Following Jesus is difficult. And if you belong to Christ, you will be asked to do hard things, to make hard decisions, to give up things that might feel fulfilling to you, to do things that you don't want to do, to work outside of your comfort zone, to even suffer for Jesus, the Gospels tell us. Please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. (laughs) There's fullness, there's everything in Christ, but it's going to also require some difficulty. Here's the third thing, is that God wants to work not just on you, but through you. If you were here for our series in Romans 8, that incredible verse 28 there where God says, Paul says, you know, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. So God is working together everything. He is always working for the good of those who love him, and that is absolutely true. But friends, sometimes God is not just working on you. He's working through you. He is working his good for the rest of the world and the rest of the church, even through some very difficult times in your life. He is working through Naomi, through her trials even here, to bring blessing to Ruth, to do amazing things for Ruth's salvation. So Naomi, just simply in her faithfulness here in in, in loving her daughters-in-law, And in God showing himself to be glorious, Ruth is converted. And of course, we'll see through the rest of the story that God is working through Ruth to bring salvation to the world. Because it is through her line that we will eventually see King David and we will eventually see King Jesus. So God is working not just in, but through his people. And then finally, here's this, and we'll finish with this, is that God's faithfulness is always bigger than our difficulty. God's faithfulness, and we see that really clearly here in Ruth chapter one, is always bigger and deeper than our difficulty. We can oftentimes be able to, you know, we focus so clearly on the things that are hard for us. And if if they're not hard right now, they will be. Okay, let's just be honest about that. Difficulty comes. But God is faithful over and over and over. 
I love the way that this chapter ends. Did you remember it? If not, let me read it one more time to you. Here's verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. (laughs) They return after the famine, and they land in the house of bread right at the time for the bread making to begin. God has fed the land, and it is time now to reap it. It's time to harvest the barley. It's time to fill the houses with bread and food so that the people will be filled. Friends, even in the times where it feels really difficult, even in the times where you feel alone, even in the places where it feels like God has left you or he has turned his face against you, the truth is this. He is with you, and he is with you to provide. He loves to bring his people back. And the story we get through the rest of Scripture is in many ways just like the story of Judges, is that we keep wandering and he keeps chasing. We keep leaving and he keeps rescuing until finally, finally he spends, he goes to the most, uttermost extreme cost that anyone could ever go to and he gives himself to rescue and feed us. Friends, if you are doubting the Lord's provision today, let Ruth 1 be an encouragement to you. God is with us. He loves us. He provides for us. Cling to him like Ruth clung to Naomi. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your provision and your goodness. Lord, we confess that we, like Israel, oftentimes go astray. We confess that we sometimes find ourselves in what feels like a foreign place, empty. We confess, Lord, that oftentimes uh, what we turn to and what we proclaim is that we're here because you've left us. We're empty because you've taken. But Lord, we want to confess this morning that you are a God who is always giving, who is always filling, who is always working for our good, and you have given us all that we need in Christ, the bread of life, born in the house of bread at the time of the harvest that we might come and reap the goodness that you have sown. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.